read to you from Acts chapter 13. Just going to read the first few verses here. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. You know, we see these verses and we see all these unfamiliar like names of, of, of cities and regions and we're like, okay, great, let's get on to the, you know, the real story. And there's a lot packed in here, and it connects to a lot of what John talked about last week and what we've been talking about throughout this series, this, this importance of, of when, if we're going to be his church, we need to, to be a church that, that is about living and sharing the gospel. And we see this here. And, and last week, it was kind of ended on a kind of a high in a way, you know, they had gone to the Isle of Cyprus, and, you know, it was, it was a place where at least Barnabas knew people, and so they're there, and then even the governor becomes a Christian. It's amazing. You know, these guys, you know, you would think they're just, they're so excited about what's happened. And now they're like, okay, let's go to the mainland. And, and there they go. And we don't know anything about this geography. I don't think most of us do. Some of you do. If you come Wednesday nights, we talked about it. But that little part where it says they, they, came, they, they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, that little bit is huge. That journey from Perga to Pisidia, I mean to Antioch, 100 miles, on foot, by the way, not just 100 miles, 100 miles, and they're going to ascend 3,600 feet. So it's uphill. And just to make it a little more fun, it's barren. There's not very much. You can't just walk along the way and see the fruit on the side of the, you know, the, side of the road or anything like that. It's barren. And to make it even more fun, where there is water, where there are streams, there are mountain streams. And these mountain streams would do what mountain streams do in barren lands. Depending on what's happening many, 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 many miles away, if snow is melting, what's going to happen to these streams? Well, they're going to flood. And all of a sudden, the path that you thought you could take, you get there, and the stream is swollen. You can't get there. can't get across. It's not an easy journey. It kind of reminds me um, and makes me feel humble because we used to think this was such a hard journey when we go to Haiti. So when I took students to Haiti, you know, we land in Port-au-Prince and we take a, it takes about 10 to 12 hours to drive to where we're going. And it's only about 100 miles. Think about that. And there's no traffic. We thought that was a hard journey. This is a hard journey. And so when we, 
when, when, we, when we look at this, we might miss that. We might think like, oh, they're just going to a city. No problem. We might miss it. But what we should see is we should see like this, this relentless desire to go and, and, and take the gospel wherever God leads. They, they weren't just looking for the, the, the easy spots. Okay, we got Cyprus down. Where's the next easiest spot? No, they go to the, one of the most difficult places to get to. And I think what they, what they do for us, what this, this part of the story does for us, is it, it, it reminds us of something that I think we sometimes struggle with. Maybe not you personally, but we as Christians today. As Christians, oftentimes we get distracted by the challenges. We get distracted by how hard it might be to do what God wants. Or we become so focused on the outcome that we forget about the journey along the way. We, we, if we get distracted by the challenges, if we look at how high that mountain is, if we look at how difficult the journey might be, what we're thinking is, can we find an easier path, God? Can, I, you know, can we find another way? You know, that's part of, it's a, it's a good thing about, I think, uh, you know, I think our society, and I think in Hawaii especially, it's a good thing that we want to get along with one another. You know, we want to have, you know, good communities. And we try to get along with one another. But what we need to understand is that if we're going to share the gospel, the gospel is going to offend. You don't have to personally offend. You don't have to be offensive. You don't have to share the gospel in an offensive way. But even if you share the gospel with incredible love, inc incredible sincerity and compassion for the person, and clearly, there's going to be people that, that are not going to like it. And we get distracted by that. We think that's, that's too hard. And the other problem is we get too focused on the outcome. We, you know, we want, we want numbers. We want to see results. If Paul and Barnabas wanted results, guess what? They wouldn't have gone to Pisidian Antioch. They would have chosen an easier place to go. In fact, why not just stay in Cyprus? It's already very fertile ground. Why would you leave this great place where so many wonderful things are happening? And we get into these challenges where we think it's too hard or we can't do it. You know, I've, I've been somewhat during this whole COVID thing that's been going on. My, I think we've been very consistent at this church and I think God has actually blessed us because of it. We're not judgy at this church. We don't judge people with masks. We don't judge people without masks. We're not judgy. We let people be where they are. We, we, try to respect, we try to respect one another. And I think because of that, 
one of the things that it's helped us is it's helped us not have a spirit of fear. When we start to have the spirit of fear, when we start to think the most important thing is to live a safe, comfortable life, we're moving farther and farther away from what God has called us to be. God is not directing Paul and Barnabas to be reckless. I'm sure they didn't, they didn't just start marching out. I'm sure they, 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 they bought provisions. They might have even, you know, hired a guide. You know, they were, you know, they were, they were, you know, they, they took precautions. There's, there's supposed to be these bandits that roamed the area they were going through. They took precautions. They weren't reckless, but they weren't fearful either. It's amazing. When we only focus on the outcomes, when we only focus on the outcomes, the problem is is that we're always worried that we're not there yet. When I see leaders who are more focused on the outcome than they are on the process of doing what we need to do, they're always focused on, we're not there yet. The people aren't there yet. And it's like, I want to get them there. I want to drag them there. I want to get them there as, in any way possible. It becomes almost obsessive. Or sometimes it's, it's the, the leader who just cannot ever rest because every night all they can think about is, we're not there yet. It's this misplaced pride, this misplaced self-importance that's masked as passion because we're so focused on the outcomes. The person who's so focused on the challenges, you know, they often will mask it in being sensible. Let's be sensible about this. Let's be prudent. Let's be logical. I just want you to, to understand that if that's your mindset, that the church should only do what's sensible, logical, and prudent, think if somehow you could be transported 2,000 years ago when Jesus said, hey guys, go to Jerusalem and just hang out there for a while, the Holy Spirit's coming. And you're the sensible, logical, prudent person. You would have been like, what do you mean wait? How long? You know, if we're going to wait, how are we going to pay for these things? Somebody got to go get a job. Somebody got to raise some money. Let's be sensible and logical and prudent about it. That's often masking the fear of the challenges. What we're going to see in this story is that Christian life is real life. It's not a fantasy. It's not Disneyland. There's failures, there's successes, there's highs, there's lows, and there's everything in between. But one of the things I want you to see in this text, as we, as we go, go through it, that whether life is awesome, whether it's full of challenges, whether it's just routine, same thing, every day, the true Christian life is filled with joy. Filled with joy. And that's what we're going to look, like, look at today. 
And so one of the points that we get from this, just this introductory part of this passage, and, and it's really subtle the way it, it's presented to us. But let me give you the point first. The point is that we need to be ready to share the gospel in every situation. Be ready to share the gospel in every situation. In this story, in this short, just few sentences, we get both sides of it. First of all, we get John. This is John Mark, believed to be the person who wrote the gospel of Mark. Mark's the negative example. He's not ready. We're not sure why he's not ready. It doesn't tell us, but he's not ready. It tells us that after they leave Cyprus, they get back to the mainland, he goes home, goes to Jerusalem. Who knows why? Maybe he's just sensible and logical. Maybe he thought like, why are we going to Pisidian Antioch? Why are we risking our lives? Why are we taking the hardest path? Why don't we take another way there where we can kind of build up? Why are we doing this? Maybe. He might have just been homesick. He might have just been young and didn't know what to expect. It doesn't really tell us why, but the impression is he's not ready. But uh, let me just tell you, one of the things we all know, because we read the rest of the book, right? We read the rest of Acts and the rest of, the rest of the New Testament. And here's what we do know, and we'll talk about this more later. He gets ready. John Mark isn't ready here, not at this point in his life, but he's going to get ready. There's a lot of people who decide, like, oh, I'm not ready, so I'm just going to not do it because I'm not ready. Or maybe they don't say it that way. Maybe they say it this way. I just don't have those gifts. I just don't have those abilities. I don't have that talent. And then they just say, that's an excuse not to do. But John gets ready. But then we get the positive example. We get the positive example of Paul. And we have to understand this picture. They've traveled 100 miles. They're in a place, they don't know anybody. But they do what they always do. They go to the synagogue. The synagogue is, is more than just a, a place of worship. The synagogue for the Jewish community that is spread all across the Roman Empire, the synagogue in that particular city would have been like the cultural center. It's where you... It's where you went to find other people, not just of like faith, but of the same culture. You didn't just go there on Sunday. You didn't just go there when they were praying. No. And it would have drawn not just the, some of the Jewish people, but it would also have drawn the Gentiles who, who were drawn to the Jewish religion. In fact, if you look at what, what Paul says at the very, very beginning, he says, men of Israel and you who fear God. We sometimes call them the God-fearers, and they're Gentiles. They're not, they're not Jewish. But they gather there at the synagogue. Paul goes there. He doesn't know anybody. 
And he's, he does this, he had done this before where he doesn't necessarily speak to the whole group, but oftentimes they would go there, they would kind of hang out with people, they'd get to know them, and then they would, you know, be sharing the gospel. But the way Luke tells us this story here, they go there, they, they sit down on the Sabbath, and after the, they've read the scriptures, the rulers did what they sometimes do. They would invite people to speak, and they specifically asked Paul and Barnabas. Again, Luke doesn't tell us why. But it could be that somehow they understood, first of all, they're travelers and they're from Jerusalem. It could have been that they knew that Paul was actually a Pharisee. So it's kind of like, hey, we got this, this big name guy here. We don't know his name, but we know he's a Pharisee. For whatever reason, Paul is asked to speak. And Paul is ready. He wasn't just ready because he had knowledge. He was ready because he was there. Because he had made the journey to get there. And they share. This is what Paul says, beginning in, again, we'll back up a little bit to verse 16. It says, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he led them out. And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he was raised from the dead, 
no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another song, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by God, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That's a lot. And I know sometimes we get lost when there's, when there's a long text. But I hope you're, you're able to follow. But let's back up a little bit. Let's look at that first long sermon that, that, that Paul gives there. And I'm just going to break it down. The first section goes to about verse 22. The emphasis on this is what God has done. He's... Paul's doing something very similar that, that Stephen did. Stephen went through the history of Israel. But when Stephen went through the history of Israel, what he was basically saying is, this is our history. God does these things, and he sends his messengers, and we kill them. That was Stephen's point. Okay? Not wrong. That was his emphasis, though. Paul's emphasis is different here. Paul's emphasis is, Look, this is God doing this. This is God giving us this. This is God leading us, directing us, providing. And he's leading to this point that's in verse 23. If you look in verse 23, he then is, is saying, the same God gave us the Messiah. The Messiah is here, and his name is Jesus. Same God. This God that, 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 you've, that you read about, that you've heard about, that God. Now the Messiah has come. 
Remember, especially among the Jewish people and these God-fearers, they're looking for a Messiah. They don't fully understand who the Messiah is supposed to be and what the Messiah is supposed to do, but they're looking for a Messiah. You even see the reference to John the Baptist. John the Baptist had died 20 to 30 years earlier, and there are still people that believe John the Baptist was the Messiah. In fact, that kind of belief is going to persist for, for decades more. This is what God has done, Israel, for you. And now this is what he has done right now. He provided Jesus. And then he, then he finally says, and this is what we did when God provided the Messiah. We killed him. But God raised him from the dead. So much is going to hinge on this resurrection and he presents the evidence. And the first bit of the evidence is, is John the Baptist? And kind of setting the record straight, John the Baptist himself said, I'm not the Messiah. In fact, I'm not only not the Messiah, I'm not even worthy to, to, to touch his sandals. I'm not even worthy to be his servant. The fact that I'm his servant is an incredible grace. When Al was reading that, that psalm, and it says, you know, you know, better to be a servant in the house of the Lord than to, you know, have your freedom to go live in, in your tents wherever you want. It's John the Baptist's mentality, but, but Paul's presenting this here to them. He then goes through these scriptures that to us, you know, we, we don't necessarily make the connections but when he starts quoting from the Psalms and he quotes from Isaiah, he's actually quoting from scripture that the first century Jewish people would have thought were prophecies written hundreds of years earlier about the Messiah. So he's not just pulling random scripture and trying to piece it all together. He's just, he's quoting scripture that they would have believed was about the Messiah. And he's talking about how Jesus fulfills these prophecies. And then he specifically talks about the resurrection. And he, he talks about how even though God told David that, you're, that there will be one coming who would never see corruption, and by corruption he doesn't mean like, you know, taking bribes or being an evil leader, but that their bodies would decay. He's saying even though that was said to David, David died. And David's body decayed. It corrupted. In fact, every one of his heirs since that time had died and their bodies had corrupted. But he says, but not Jesus. God resurrected Jesus. He saw no corruption. And then the evidence that he provides is we have eyewitnesses. We have people who've walked, who walked with him in life, who knew him, and then walked with him when he was resurrected. This is the evidence that he presents to them. 
And then he gives the main point. And if you want to go back to verse 38, if you have your Bibles open. But back in verse 38, he gives this, the main point of the whole, the whole thing. And this is aimed at both the Jewish people there and the Gentiles who are the God-fearers. And he says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You know, our church is not an amen church. You know what I mean by that? You ever been in churches where every time pastor makes a point, people go, amen, hallelujah, brother, right? We don't do that. If you want to do it, it's fine. Kind of freak us out a little bit at first, but we'll get used to it. But if this synagogue was an amen kind of synagogue, that story that Paul's telling at the beginning, amen, God did that, amen, God did that. And then in verse 38, he says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And their eyebrow would have gone up a little bit. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed. Eyebrows a little higher. And then the last thing he says is, by the law of Moses. This had to make some of the people really upset. Really angry. Because not only was Paul claiming Jesus could forgive sins, which was blasphemous enough, But he was also saying, the law, the whole reason you guys came today to read the law, it's not enough. It's not enough. And there would have been a group in there that would have been so angry. And then there would have been, who asked this guy to speak? Oh, yeah, the ruler did. But there would have been another group. And most of the people that were the, what were called the God-fearers, that group, they would have rejoiced. There's forgiveness of sins. There's freedom. Something that they didn't know. As God-fearers, they were, they were non-Jewish people, and they, but they believed in God. And they, they wanted to follow God, but they didn't fully convert to Judaism. They would come to the synagogues, If they were in Jerusalem, they would even go to the temple. But they were never going to be fully embraced, fully accepted. They were always kind of on the outs, second class at best. And the big reason is because they were Gentiles. They were impure. They were dirty. And Jesus says, no, I've come to forgive your sins. I've come to make you clean. But in addition to that, I've come to set you free. I love our church because I think the majority of the people in our church that, that you guys track with the sermons. You know, we have the notes to help you and, and, and all, but you track with the sermons. You know, I've been in other churches where sometimes the pastor has to say, If you don't listen to anything else, listen to this. And then they'll say something. I'm like, dude, you're 
just insulted your whole congregation. But let, let, me, let me tell you this. That, that if somehow you, you're, you're missing, you're missing the overarching power of the gospel and what it means to be set free. It means that you're set free from living the way the world says you should live. The world says you should live by simply taking care of yourself, getting as much as you can, having as much power, trying to survive. That's it. That's the reason for existence. That you, you meet power with power, and if you're weak, make sure you get a powerful friend. That's what the world says. And we become slaves to that. Oh, it doesn't always show up that way in our lives because most of us don't live in situations where our life is constantly threatened, where people are constantly trying to take our stuff. But for us, it comes up in, in, in our pride. It comes up in our motivation for why we do what we do. And we might be enslaved to it, but it's kind of a nice slavery. It's kind of pleasant. But make no mistake, it's still slavery. What Jesus came to do and what the power of the gospel does is it frees us from that. We no longer live the way the world lives. We no longer love just simply so we can get something out of it. We don't give so somebody will give back to us. We don't live by the ethic of, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. We're not collecting favors. Every time I, I might do something, you know, to help you or you help me, I'm not, you know, tallying up in my head how many times I helped you and how many times you helped me. So hopefully at the end of the day, I'll be a little bit ahead or we'll be even. No, that's how the world lives. When we're freed, we're freed to love unconditionally, sacrificially. We're freed to live above how the world lives. And we're not doing it so that we can look down on the world. We're doing it because when we live that way, when we love that way, we're bringing hope to the world. Because as I've told you before, if the world continues to be driven by the way the world is driven, it only ends one of two ways. It only ends where, where we are so much at war with one another that we annihilate each other. Or it ends with the most powerful person or group of people taking over and controlling every area of your life. In other words, it, it ends with more slavery. Jesus came to proclaim hope, to give us freedom from the power of sin, the power of this world. That's the main point of this, of this sermon. 
And, and then he follows it up in the last couple of verses by saying, don't miss it. Don't be scoffers. You know, we've talked about this for the last couple of weeks. Don't miss God at work. Jesus himself showed up and so many people missed it. Don't be those people. We see this amazing response. It says, after the meeting, many, the the Jewish people, and many of the God-fearers, the converts to Judaism, they, they followed Paul and Barnabas. In other words, they bugged them. They went and they asked them questions. They kept, you know, wanting to know more, wanting to know more, and, and they wanted them to come back one week later. So they stay for one week in Pisidian Antioch. And you know through that whole week they're talking and they're sharing, and the people who are hearing are telling other people. To the point that in verse 44 it says, the next Sabbath at that same synagogue, virtually the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. It's amazing. It's amazing. But that's one of the things we saw in Jesus' ministry that we're seeing here. There's a lot of people that can be impressed by the miracles or the signs. There can even be people that are somewhat attracted to the truth, to the point that they, that they, they, they want to hear the truth. But the problem is, is that they might want to hear the truth, but most of them don't want to receive the truth. And we see this in the story. We know some of the Jewish people are now converting. We know some of the Gentiles are converting. But it seems like the majority, even though they've been drawn to hear this message, they're not. They don't want to receive it. In verse 42, it says, they begged them. In verse 44, it says, almost the whole city. But by the time we get to verses 50 and 51, they're being driven out of the city. If you didn't know this story, you would be thinking, this is, this is going to be awesome. It's just like Cyprus. And maybe that's how Paul and Barnabas was thinking, like, wow, this Christian missionary stuff's pretty easy. You know, I just went to Cyprus, it's awesome, now we're going to this place, it's awesome. But everything turns. People want to hear the truth, but most do not want to receive it. You see, half of the gospel, half of the gospel can be very attractive. If I just give you half of the gospel, if I just say, Hey, if you believe in Jesus, you're going to live forever after you die. And if you live for Jesus, he promises to to walk with you and help you when you're scared, help you when you're hurting, and, you know, bless you. It's a pretty attractive gospel. And there's a lot of people who get attracted to that gospel. And maybe they're at the point where they say, I want to hear more. I want to hear the whole gospel. And as I was, I was telling our Sunday school class this morning, whether Pastor John's preaching or whether I'm preaching, you every week get the whole gospel. 
Because the gospel is not just about you receiving. It's about you following. You serving. You being humble. It's about us as a church coming together, walking together, encouraging one another, serving one another. It's about us going out into the world together, serving, presenting the gospel. It takes time. It takes our talent. And sometimes it takes our treasure, our resources. And it's not because God needs them. But it's because God wants to use us. His gospel is about transforming the world, not just transforming you. Half a gospel is attractive. But when people start to hear the full gospel, when they start thinking like, the church is not just going to do the, the things that make sense or that seem easy, but they want to go to Pisidian Antioch. There's people that are like, ah, oh, no. Sorry, that doesn't make sense. It's too risky. And it, it always boggles my mind it always boggles my mind when people accept a Christianity like that. Because what is central to the Bible, what is central to the gospel, is that when the world met the perfect, loving Son of God, who did nothing except preach and heal and minister to people, when the world met that guy, they wanted to kill him. How could we ever think that following him is all supposed to be roses and sunshine and butterflies? I don't know, but somehow people, they, they, they read out of the Bible the cost of following Jesus. And as we talked about for the past few weeks, what are, we, what are we called to do? We're called to be faithful. We're called to be faithful in every situation. The point that we actually get from, from the second sermon, I had the first sermon and then the second sermon in verse 47, Paul says, he quotes, he says, for this, so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you might bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And what we see here is the, the mistake that, that the nation of Israel had made. Israel believed, rightfully so, that they were chosen by God, and they were. But what they forgot was why, why they were chosen. For us as Christians, a lot of Christians will say, Jesus has saved me. 
But the question that they don't want to ask is why? And so they want to embrace the blessings or the benefit, but they don't want to accept the responsibilities. God saves us for our benefit. He saves us for our benefit, but he also saves us for his glory. He's going to use us. We can't live in this halfway gospel. As I've said before, God doesn't bless us just to bless us. Whether it's the blessing of salvation or whether it's some of the blessings you have in your life, he doesn't bless us just to bless us. He blesses us with whatever it is, resources, opportunities. He blesses us so that we might serve, that we might bring hope to this world, that we might advance his kingdom. And even when he blesses us as a church, he doesn't bless us as a church so we can, we can build a bigger building, so we can buy more property. He blesses us as a church so that together we can advance his kingdom. And it's so funny because I'll hear people talk about the advancing of the kingdom and then they'll get caught up in like military terms and then they'll be like, oh yeah, you know, we're going to go out and, you know, wage war on darkness. And there's nothing wrong with that. The Bible uses language like that. But let me remind you, when we advance together as his church, we advance his kingdom together as a church, our main weapons, here they are, Love, the gospel, truth, hope, and healing. If we remember that, you can keep all the military metaphors you want. But unfortunately, we often forget that and we just hold on to the military metaphors. And when we talk about being at war in this world, which we are, we think we need to fight the way the world fights. And as soon as the church fights the way the world fights, the world has won. That is the great declaration of the cross, the most powerful, the most powerful being in the universe, the creator of the universe, when met with the world's power, did not go and strike them dead. He died on a cross. If we don't get that message, we miss the point of Christianity. Christianity doesn't win by meeting world's power with world's power. Christianity wins. God wins. His kingdom advances when we faithfully live his word, love one another, love our enemies. That's how. And here's how we get it, and this is the last point. And it's that point that we see at the end. We see a couple of places in here where joy comes up. First of all, the Gentiles rejoice when they hear you bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And then we see joy after they get kicked out of the city. They get kicked out of the city, and then it says, and they were filled with joy. Why? 
Because God's church, remember, the whole theme of this series, series is becoming his church. God's church finds joy in, in faithfully proclaiming the gospel regardless of the results. If we're faithful in proclaiming the gospel, we find joy. Look at what's happened on this trip. They lost John Mark. They went on this arduous journey. They had mixed results in this city and eventually were driven from the city and yet it ends with they were filled with joy. They're filled with joy because they go, we were faithful. We weren't just faithful in Cyprus when we had this incredible victory. We're faithful in Pisidian Antioch where we got chased out of the city. And you know what? We're going to be faithful in the next city. And what we find here with the reaction of the Gentiles and then the reaction of the disciples is we find this really important component to our witness, and that is joy. Joy is the result of the gospel. If we truly know what it means to be set free, if we truly know what it means to be forgiven, it is the result of the gospel, but joy is also the witness to the world. My daughters have said this, that my resting face is a mad face. So my wife often asks me, why are you angry? And I'm like, it's just my face. It's what it is, right? Maybe I should work on it. Maybe I should get a mask with a smile. I'm not sure. But whether it's your face or really if it's more like the way you live, is joy apparent in your life? Is joy a result of who you are in Christ? A world out there filled with darkness, they need to see the joy of the Lord in our lives. That's how I want to end there. I want to end the way the text ends. And we ask the question, are we filled with joy? Are we filled with the Holy Spirit? And if so, are we ready to be his witnesses wherever he leads us?